0: You ready to rock and roll? Okay. Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Very nice to see you all here uh, for a Sydney Ideas Lecture sponsored by the uh, uh, University China Study Centre. I'm David Goodman. I'm the Academic Director of the China Study Centre. It's very nice to welcome you, as I say. Well, before we go any further, will you please ensure that your mobile phones are switched off, uh, because uh, the um, lecture will be. recorded for a podcast later, and it's always so boring if the phones go off in the middle. Our guest tonight is uh, a very high-profile modern Chinese historian, possibly the most high-profile you could get, Rana Mitter from the University of Oxford, who uh, has come actually to give this lecture. So we're very pleased indeed. He's going to talk about the influence of the war years on current politics, and... uh, I just hand over to him and say thank you very much indeed.
1: David, thank you very much indeed for that uh, very generous welcome, and thank you all very much for being here tonight. It's a pleasure to be here as the guest of the Chinese Studies Centre at Sydney, a place that I have been curious to see ever since uh, the former Prime Minister of Australia, Mr Rudd, visited Oxford and gave a talk uh, last year, and explained in casual conversation that he had provided something close, I believe, to 60 million Australian dollars, for the study of China in this, uh, in this country, although I think, sadly, largely concentrated at the Australian National University rather than here. When I followed up by asking Mr Rudd if, in fact, he had brought his checkbook with him, he had an unfortunate moment in which he, seems to, he seemed to have lost in the back pocket somewhere. But uh, we might invite him again and live in, uh, live in hope. Anyway, it's a great pleasure to be here in Sydney and here uh, speaking at an event sponsored by the Centre. And I would like this evening to spend some time talking to you about a subject which, as David has mentioned and as my title suggests, I think is of real significance in terms of understanding a great deal to do with China today – and in a week when the North Korean crisis continues to bubble over, when uh, there are still unresolved tensions in both the East and South China seas, and when it's clear that the future of this country, of Australia, is going to be tied to the nature of the Chinese economy for a very long time, we could probably spend the entire three and a half hours I've been given to speak tonight. That's about right, is it, David? Um, the entire time that I have to speak tonight just speaking about aspects of contemporary politics. But I actually want to do something slightly different. I do want to spend quite a bit of time talking about some aspects of history, and history that I think has not been sufficiently understood and appreciated in the West, in terms of its significance, not just in terms of helping us to understand China's present in a more nuanced way, but also, actually, I think our own, meaning our own in the West. I'm not sure whether Australia still counts as the West, but for the moment we'll uh, assume that it does. And to make my point, I want to start, if I may, with um, a slide, which I hope is going to work. I'm told that uh, counterintuitively I have to point at the back of the room to make this particular thing move forward. That may have something to do with being in the Southern Hemisphere, David, I suspect. Right. Okay, now here we have, as even those of you who don't uh, read and speak Chinese uh, will, will see from the logo, a uh, DVD box. For those of you who have a certain youthful age in this audience, and I see some of you, I should explain that a DVD is a historical item that used to be common up to about four or five years ago, but which has been replaced by downloads, so you'll have to uh, bear with us oldsters on this. And this DVD, again, for those who are not China specialists, actually I'm going to take a, a moment here just to check who all of you people are, and if any of you thinking you were going to wander into a lecture about nuclear physics, and are now kind of terribly worried about looking embarrassed as you leave the room, we'll find out now. How many people here actually um, have been to China? Fair number. No, that's a good uh, number there. How many of you would count yourself as, as China specialists in one sense or another, whether business, academia, education, doing an undergraduate degree, whatever? Yeah, relatively fewer. Okay, well, when I ask some of these questions, you guys are not allowed to answer first, because that's, that's cheating. We'll bring you, in, uh, bring you in afterwards. So this DVD is um, an example of a genre, of a type of television programme, which actually certainly in my home country of the UK is extremely um, common. It is a documentary about... The Second World War. In fact, we have a television channel in um, uh, Britain called Channel 5, which really consists entirely of only three different types of program, one of which is football matches, one of which is um, vaguely flirtatious movies that are on the e- edge of salaciousness but never quite tip over, and one is documentaries about the late and frankly unlamented Adolf Hitler. Uh, th- these three items seem to cons- co- constitute a business model from the point of view of of this television station, so the idea of World War II as a ratings grabber is clearly something that um, is not um, uh, unfamiliar. But this particular scenario, as you see on the DVD box here, is not, I think, so commonly known, at least in the West. We have here a documentary about the great wartime capitals of World War II, And um, uh, on the left, we see, obviously, part of the Houses of Parliament representing London. In the middle, we have the um, uh, Red Square clock in Moscow for the Soviet Union. Um, We then have the uh, U.S. Capitol building for Washington, D.C. So far, so familiar. But the item on the right is generally less familiar to most people, even those who are quite expert on the World War Two subject, I wonder if anyone who is not a China expert actually knows what it is, or indeed has actually perhaps seen it or, or visited it. It's still very much there today. If you want to to see it, you didn't know there's going to be audience participation in this lecture when you came. Did you, you think you're going to sit back with a nice glass of Barossa and enjoy? But no, you're going to have to work this evening. Okay, even uh, even amongst the, uh, do we have a voice there? Now, how about amongst the China experts? Does anyone uh, recognise this? I suspect that probably some, some people do, but maybe they're feeling a bit uh, a bit shy. It's something that was originally built as the anti-Japanese war memorial in the centre of the southwestern city of Chongqing, uh, known 70 or 80 years ago in the West by its older name of Chongqing, uh, but uh, both names um, are still found uh, found today. And for a brief but significant period, about eight years, between 1937 and 1945, Chongqing served as the temporary wartime capital of China after forced evacuation from the then capital of Nanjing. This element of wartime history, the history of excuse me, China's wider wartime contribution to the Allied war effort and what it did to China is something that for a variety of reasons, which I'll go into in more detail, has tended to be underplayed and forgotten, not just in the West, although certainly there, but also in China itself. And the reasons for that disappearance, you might say, from historical memory and its sudden in some ways surprising and I think very prominent reappearance in recent decades is, I think, a phenomenon that deserves examination in its own right and also in terms of the new historical interpretations which it brings along with it. So I'm going to use this perhaps slightly surprising picture of the four great wartime capital cities as the entry point to talk a little bit about the history we've forgotten and why we might come to remember it. Before I do that, though, I think I should point out one... Um, uh, fact in, in terms of historical accuracy, uh, since you may be dis- misled by this DVD box. Um, the anti-Japanese war memorial, now renamed actually the Liberation Monument, in the centre of Chongqing, is not in fact twice as tall as the US Capitol building <laughs> as this box implies. Uh, if so, I think we might have heard about it a bit more by, uh, by now. I will not go into the reason for the box designer's desire to do this, since our subject tonight is history and not Freudian psychology, so so, we will leave that matter where it stands. It's necessary, I think, to just spend a very few minutes giving some of the basic facts, figures, and data on the devastating experience of World War II in China. It's often a source of annoyance for at least some Europeans. That, and you'll be shocked to hear this, some, um, uh, well, in some, on some occasions, the United States tends to count the Second World War as only starting from Pearl Harbor, i.e., the moment of American entry, um, not counting, therefore, the invasion of Poland after 1939. I've often, though, thought it must be equally annoying to many in China to have their own entry into what would eventually become a global conflict in July 1937, uh, roundly ignored. But the fact remains that in early July, in the days after 7th of July 1937, sporadic fighting between local Japanese garrison troops and Chinese uh, militarist troops in the northern part of China, actually in a small village called Wanping outside uh, the uh, main center of Beijing, would lead within a very few days and weeks to an all-out war between China and Japan that eventually, of course, would end only after eight years with the dropping of the atomic bombs on Japan by the Americans and the ending of World War II. Nonetheless, the contours of that experience, the invasion and occupation of large parts of China, the emergence of an immensely powerful and important Chinese communist movement, and the attempts to um, fight back and refusal to resist by the then Chinese nationalist government all stand as a very important part of the experience of war during that time, which I think hasn't been fully understood. During the course of the eight years or so, even quite conservative estimates put the number of Chinese dead at something like 13, 14 or 15 million people, not as high as the death toll in the Soviet Union during the war, but still immensely uh, large. We also have... uh, Estimates done, of course, under immensely difficult circumstances when collecting statistics was hardly simple of some 80 to 100 million Chinese becoming refugees at some point during the conflict. Also, of course, the destruction of the tentative modernization that emerged in China during the course of the 1920s and 1930s with large parts of the industrial plant which is to be found mostly in the uh, uh, more developed cities such as Shanghai, uh, Nanjing and so forth, being destroyed in bombing or being uh, raided by the Japanese military. In other words, a devastating set of events that clearly in many ways changed the path of China's uh, direction and eventually, of course, would set the path for a Chinese communist um, revolution. During that time, it's important to remember that China was already, very tentatively, on a difficult, but in some ways quite fast-developed path towards modernization. The revolution of 1911, 1912, that had overthrown the last emperor had led to a succession of uh, battles between uh, militarist leaders, often known as warlords, eventually culminating in a, um, uh, a, a joint expedition against the warlords uh, by communists and nationalists, two different parties, joining together, largely under Soviet advice, to try and unify China one of the events which became a founding part of the narrative of the Chinese Communist Party was the turning on the communists by the leader of the then Nationalist Party, Chiang Kai-shek, a man who has then sat, his name at any rate has sat in the annals of villainy in the Chinese Communist uh, um, Party's uh, story um, ever, ever since. Very large numbers of Chinese Communist activists and um, Followers were brutally murdered in 1927 as Chiang Kai-shek turned against their party. But what is often forgotten is that in the decade or so after that destruction of large parts of the Communist Party, the nationalists did make deeply flawed and in many ways corrupt, but also in some ways quite promising attempts to modernize China during the decade or so of their, um, uh, their rule, the amount of uh, railways, the amount of uh, open highways, um, and the industrial development of China grew at a quite rapid rate, particularly interesting at a time when there was a world economic depression for much of the, uh, of the decade. And in terms of the comparators, in terms of the societies against which nationalist China under Chiang Kai-shek could be measured. While it hardly looks like an oasis of peaceful or liberal democracy, its record doesn't necessarily um, measure up entirely badly either. But the one real thorn in the flesh at this point was, of course, the continuing menace of the enemy across the water. Across the Sea of Japan, Japan, also a powerful country, much more technologically advanced than China and much more militarized, had also turned much more um, inward during the Great Depression period and had decided that its destiny lay in taking over and controlling large parts of the Chinese mainland. First, occupying Manchuria up in the uh, northeast of, uh, whoops, sorry. Uh, up in the northeast of china during the um uh the early 1930s and then slowly in the years 1933 34 35 36 moving southward to control large parts of northern china either in terms of direct occupation or in other areas bribing or forcing local military leaders to cooperate with the japanese rather than with Chiang Kai-shek's government, which was based with its capital down here at Nanjing, in central China, and with its great port city of Shanghai as one of its major sources of income. And the tensions between China and Japan grew to the point that a small clash between soldiers from a Japanese garrison and a Chinese regiment, clashing together in July 1937, could rather like the shot... Uh, that killed the Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo in 1914, suddenly balloon into a declaration of ultimately all-out war between the two countries. So the emergence of war quite suddenly in the summer of 1937 between China and Japan led to a huge increase in Chinese propaganda to try and create a wider sense of national resistance against the invader. And these are two examples from um, Zhang Taihung's wonderful book about popular culture in uh, wartime China that show the kind of propaganda scenarios used at the time by cartoonists in newspapers. The top, a... uh, Uh, rather crudely caricatured um, uh, cartoon of a Japanese soldier committing a sexual assault on a woman who represents China, of course, in this case. In some ways, I think perhaps more impressive because more, more subtle is the image we have below from Feng Zikai, one of China's very greatest um, artists of the 20th century, an expert in uh, woodcut as well as painting. And this little woodcut here of a school for the blind and the mute, um, showing two bombs about to drop on it, I think is rather wonderfully poignant because instead of choosing the obvious image to portray of a destroyed building with rubble everywhere, he's chosen the last millisecond of peace before the bombs hit this particular Building. So, this is just one very small part of a um, wider uh, uh, propaganda effort that the Chinese government, and at this point, the communists and nationalists' enemies had uneasily come together to fight against the Japanese um, in the hope of creating a wider national sense of uh, opposition to the Japanese. Now, during this time, China's geography had changed rather extensively just to take you back to the map for a moment the first months of the war saw a wholesale invasion of china two levels one coming here through occupied or japanese um colonized korea and manchuria into northern china and we also have here more japanese troops landed at shanghai invading central china so basically by the middle of 1938 year after the war had begun large parts of central china were occupied by the japanese parts of South China too, and this part up here we have significant Chinese Communist forces in the north um, holding their own and engaging in important guerrilla campaigns against the, uh, the Japanese. But Chiang Kai-shek's government had made a decision early on that it was not possible to defend the nationalist capital at Nanjing, which as I'm sure you know was subject to a horrific massacre in the uh, winter of 1937, and instead moved their people and Along with them came millions of refugees, 600 miles or so up the Yangtze River to Chongqing, here in the center of China. And if you're going to defend yourself to the death against an invader in China, Chongqing is a good place to choose. On the one hand, it is accessible for supplies. It sits on the confluence of two great rivers, the Yangtze and the Jialing. At the same time, it sits at the top of extremely high cliffs, which make it very difficult to invade by land. And for that reason, it was chosen as a redoubt for the nationalist government and for Chiang Kai-shek even though the city itself was not one in which the nationalist government, the Guomindang, uh, as sometimes known, I should, uh, should say, or Kuomintang, if you've seen that uh, uh, romanization in, in some of the books on China, the nationalists did not consider Sichuan province, where Chongqing sat, to be a natural part of their area of control. So to some extent, moving the wartime capital there was an act of desperation. And I've mentioned that the city could not be invaded or occupied by land very easily, which is certainly true. But of course, World War II was the first global conflict where it became uh, commonplace for terror to come from the air. And one of the constants in life in wartime Chongqing, recorded amongst others by Time correspondent's um, uh, reporter, uh, sorry, Time magazine's correspondent, Theodore White, was the constant expectation of air raids. And these would repeatedly provide uh, unexpected and very destructive interruptions to attempts to carry on the business of government and everyday life. So... Here we have one fairly typical scenario from the air raids that began in 1938 and continued at their strongest um, uh, level for the next three years or so. That's obviously just after an air raid has taken place. Uh, This picture taken from above gives uh, a slightly better view of one of the ways in which... um, The city became this sort of wasteland in parts of rubble and destruction simply because of the constant pounding that would come from the terror raids. Although there were many raids, the one that perhaps became the most iconic took place on the 3rd and 4th of May 1939. So again, this is still six or seven months before the outbreak of war in Europe. And during the course of those two days, Japanese bombers repeatedly attacked the city. In total, I think, about 25, 26 raids, um, which ended up killing about... Five or 6,000 people, actually more than that, I think about 8,000 people, and destroying even larger numbers of houses as well. I think about 11,000 houses destroyed in just those two days. But there was also a really quite terrifying symbolism that educated Chinese at least recognized, because 4th of May 1939, the date of the second set of raids, was the exact 20th anniversary of perhaps the most famous to this day, most famous student nationalist demonstration in China, so much so that if you talk about the May 4th demonstrations, even today in China, people will know exactly what you mean. And this was a demonstration by three or 4,000 students in Peking Uh, protesting against foreign imperialism, protesting against the Versailles Treaty, which they thought was unfair to China, and demanding science and democracy as a sort of Enlightenment-influenced way to try and create a new, modern, and progressive China. So to have an air raid trying to destroy the Chinese resistance on the exact 20th anniversary of those um, uh, protests was a symbolism that was very heavily understood and certainly... The great Chinese novelist Lao She wrote a very moving and um, extensive piece in which he argued that despite the destruction of May the Fourth, 1939, the spirit of May the Fourth, 1919, would never be wiped out. Well, it's all very well to talk about resistance and talk about the need to oppose an invader, but to create a wartime state that has some hope of sustaining the resistance of its people, you need an awful lot of different um, elements. And there isn't time to talk about all of them tonight, although we could go to everything from the need to maintain a strong military to the need to maintain food supply. But let me just say a few words about one of the areas that I think until recently has really been under-examined in terms of understanding the importance of the wartime years in the shaping Of modern China. And to give an example of that I will show you a document. This document uh, comes from the uh, Chongqing Municipal Archives. And sorry, I realized I put the wrong date at the bottom. That should be 1941 but I will get that changed. Um, But The item here, and those of you who read Chinese, which I think is some of you in the audience will recognize this immediately, but for those who don't, I'll explain. It's basically part of a set of surveys in which um, agencies of the city government, in this case the Food Supply uh, Committee, are looking at damage from air raids in Chongqing and working out the value of property that has been lost by people who have uh, had their houses and property destroyed in the air raid, So at the top you have a list of various items. We've got a bed,' got a quilt,'ve got some shoes. Uh, down uh, further down, you see in the columns, you see uh, the number of items that have been lost, the level of destruction, almost all of these have been completely destroyed, the original value of these items. This particular document sits as part of a set of documents in which officials are debating questions about what kind of compensation can they give to people who've had their property destroyed, many of them working for the government, of course. That's the reason they're in Chongqing in the first place and have joined the government in exile. Uh, In some rather poignant and often harrowing cases, how much time off you have to give people when one of their family, their children perhaps, have been killed in an air raid, how much money you can assign for the funeral expenses of a family member of a government official. All sorts of things to do with, I was going to say the small change, but that isn't really the right expression, more like the day-to-day lived reality behind the rhetoric of resistance. But why is this significant in particular? Because it marks one of the occasions when a Chinese government, the Chinese government at this point, felt it necessary to really push hard on a state-defined system of welfare, relief, and rehabilitation as a result of war destruction and damage. The main story we have had for many years, and for understandable reasons, is of a communist revolution in China during this period that created a new social contract, particularly for the peasantry of China, in which the exploitation was ended, in which they they would be allowed to take more control of their own destinies, in which taxes would be reoriented, all the things that were done um, by not only Mao in his base area up in northern China but also, as uh, Professor Goodman for for one will uh, tell you, by a variety of other less famous but equally important communist movements in other parts of China too. So this is not in any way to downplay or downgrade the very important social changes made by communism in China during the war. That's not the point of what I'm trying to say. What I think is important is that we've begun to broaden the context, because the communist moves happened in the context of alternative and rival forms of nationalism, which also tried to create a new social contract For their people. One could argue, I think, very strongly that these were not necessarily very successful um, in all cases. And one example of that would be the government of a man called Wang Jingwei, who collaborated with the Japanese. Uh, He was the Pierre Laval, or the General Pétain, you might say, of of China during the war years, rather than choosing to resist them. But we know that his regime, too, tried to win over the people under his control by instituting new forms of uh, social provision. Certainly, the documentation shows that the efforts by the Chinese government uh, of Chiang Kai-shek during the war years, while inadequate to the huge refugee flight that I mentioned and the huge need, were nonetheless very considerable, and certainly not, as they've been caricatured by um, their opponents in the past, um, simply um, a, an empty or vain or ineffective mechanism to try and deal with the real problems of uh, the wartime uh, refugee experience as part of this a whole variety of different mechanisms were tried so actually this one here this is one example not necessarily entirely typical one but it's part of a wider mix of attempts to create types of industrial cooperative in china during this this period. A lot of these did indeed fall prey to uh, corruption and inability to find the expertise that was needed at the, uh, the time. But they were interesting, and in some cases quite effective, methods of creating a new sort of social contract. In a more homely way, one should also add that medical scenarios, particularly mass vaccinations and also the rehabilitations of the frankly often noisome lavatory facilities in many public places in China were also an important part of the nationalist program. And while this might sound like, again, something quite small change in the face of a global war, it is also worth noting that in 40 degree Celsius temperatures with disease rife, and very little medicine available, actually trying to keep sewage under control and keep the plumbing clean is probably one of the most sensible and low-cost things you can do in terms of public health provision. It's often also forgotten that, at the time, China's war effort was extremely prominent Around the world. For many people on the progressive left in particular, it sat exactly alongside the Spanish Civil War, which at least in its early years was being fought at exactly the same time. Indeed, there were fraternal, if slightly forlorn, greetings sent by the representative of the Spanish Republic in 1937 to China in recognition of its attempt to fight back against the Japanese invasion. And certainly activists in Britain, amongst many other countries, uh, collected money through the CCC, the China Campaign Committee, and other organizations to send to assist the Chinese war effort at the time. While they were aware of, and certainly in many cases, very sympathetic to the communist movement that was burgeoning at the time. One should note again that it was the Chinese nationalist governmental effort that, at least in the first instance, they were seeking to support. The attempt to mobilize wider society in China um, extended to a variety of different parts of society. So we have here an example of a uh, torchlight parade of um, a torchlight parade of women again uh, demonstrating in a sort of gesture of resistance against the uh, the Japanese and this was part of an attempt which again is documented quite clearly in archival materials to try and bring women more strongly into the political movement of resistance and nationalism against the Japanese. There are a great many complaints amongst activists in some of these documents that the uh, women in rural areas tend to be conservative. This is a very long-standing complaint of Chinese reformers that uh, the peasantry, both male and female, don't turn out to behave in the way that the middle class elites expect them to, uh, to do. But at the same time, there is also a strong understanding that um, a greater and more public role for women in the war effort was an important part of mobilizing society. Even, even down to the uh, most junior member society, here we see uh, a sort of junior level military drill going on um, as part of that uh, wider, uh, wider mobilization. One of the most indicative ways, I should add, I think, in which it's clear that the Chinese nationalists in particular were thinking about their plight and about their resistance, particularly after 1941 and the entry of Britain and America into the war on China's side, the reason, uh, the, the indication that they thought of themselves as part of an international struggle comes, I think most intriguingly, from uh, an article, uh, or rather a, a paper, written by Chinese nationalist officials, which um, one of my postdoctoral um, uh, researchers, researchers, you Ma, has just written a brilliant article about, which is the Chinese nationalist view of the beverage plan. Uh, many of you here, I think, will know this, but just in case, the beverage plan was the long report put out, or the beverage report, by Sir William Beveridge, British liberal politician, in 1942, in which, he, which he advocated the framework for what would eventually become the post-war British welfare state. And there's a long set of commentaries by these Chinese bureaucrats talking about the, as they put it, world-famous beverage plan, what a good idea it was, and why it was terribly important to have a scenario of that sort to understand how to reconstruct a post-war society. Now, we know, of course, that it wasn't the Chinese nationalists who got to reconstruct post-war Chinese society in the end. It was the Chinese communists. But the fact that they were looking at it at the time helps us to understand further that they saw themselves as part of a wider, global, transnational process in which the war amongst other things, was a vehicle for a type of social renewal and social welfareism that also involved a much greater set of obligations between state and society and the wider population. However, as I've said, this was a scenario in the minds of the Chinese nationalists that, to put it mildly, did not work out. And the state that was nationalist China in 1945 at the end of the war was a pretty unlovable outfit. It was a state that was um, hollowed out with corruption. Its four million or so originally uh, mustered armed forces had either been killed in battle, the very best troops were killed in the first few years of the war, or were riddled with disease and essentially of very little military value. Um, it was printing banknotes like there was no tomorrow. There pretty much wasn't any tomorrow at that point, and inflation really took a uh, deep hold of, uh, uh, of Chinese society during that period. It had managed to engineer a famine which killed some three or four million people in uh, the province of Hunan and the surrounding areas during the last few years, all of which was movingly and in in very condemnatory terms, reported by foreign uh, journalists, such as Time magazine's Theodore White. So why should we give such a regime anything like a second thought? Well, as I say, context is important, and while I think there is no value in uh, the idea of revising things to argue that the Chinese nationalists were in fact happy, clappy, liberal Democrats who have been misunderstood, rather as their um, uh, their uh, supporters in the so-called China lobby maintained in Washington, D.C. during the, uh, the Cold War years. It is, I think, important to understand that, in a sense, the scenario in front of the Chinese nationalists was a bit like a Greek tragedy rather than a melodrama, rather than being a story of black and white, depending which side you fall on, the communists versus nationalists divide. It's really more like one of those Greek tragedies where the end result is inevitable, regardless of which path you take. Once war had broken out, a very poor, very agricultural, very technologically under-equipped country like China, which found itself essentially cut off from all sides in terms of imports, exports, supplies of machinery, supplies even of food. China had always been a, uh, an importer of large amounts of grain and rice from Southeast Asia. All of these things came together, meaning that even the best equipped and best, intention, best intended of governments would have found it almost impossible to uh, keep a clean, honest, and effective government going. And the nationalists were a very way, long way from that in the first place. But for reasons good and bad they found themselves eventually um, on uh, the winning side in 1945, but with their bank account, both literally and in terms of moral capital, almost entirely drained. In contrast, of course, the Chinese communists, uh, particularly as one Mao Zedong rose to power after 1943 in particular, found themselves in prime position with much better trained, much better fed, much better equipped armies, which took on the nationalists in the civil war that followed almost immediately between 1946 and 49, and as we all know, led to Chiang Kai-shek and his remaining troops and officials fleeing to Taiwan and the establishment on the 1st of October of 1949 of the People's Republic of China. We now have to leave the story of the end of the war and the civil war and do, as it were, a fast-forward to aspects of the present day. But to do that, we just have to alight for a few minutes on a very odd phenomenon, which was, and I'm exaggerating slightly, but only slightly, the disappearance of World War II after 1949 in China. The war wasn't really discussed in any fully ranging or meaningful way for the best part of four decades, either in the West or in China itself. Why not? Well, a variety of things come to pass. From the Western point of view, essentially China had changed from being a problematic ally, but an ally nonetheless, between 1945 to within less than five years, by 1949, becoming a sullen communist giant, an incomprehensible society that was even more mysterious, certainly to the Americans, and to some extent to the Europeans, than the Soviet Union. In other words, the story of China's wartime contribution no longer fitted into the wider Cold War narrative and was, to that extent, dropped as politically um, not useful, let's put it that way. On the other hand, in China itself, it became equally, or indeed perhaps more problematic, to talk about the wartime years. Mao had triumphed, the communists had triumphed, and the only discussion that could really be made of the uh, Chinese wartime contribution was the significant but obviously geographically limited contribution of Mao and his home base area of Yan'an in northwest China, between 37 and 45, the genesis there of the Chinese Communist Revolution. And this, in a sense, did injustice to several groups of people. One group of people it did injustice to were the communists who had not been directly under Mao between 1937 and 45. As I said before, David Goodman's books and continuing projects have been an important part of restoring our understanding of those non-Mao communist stories, so to speak. But the other element that found itself essentially uh, ignored, or worse, condemned during this period, was the war contribution of that large part of South, Southwest, and Central China that had not been under Communist control at all, but under Nationalist control. These were the areas that had contributed very large numbers of soldiers, of food, of uh, a place for the the, the government to go into exile, and none of these things were discussed except in extremely cursory and generally condemnatory uh, forms for the whole period of the Cold War. It simply wasn't feasible or politically possible to do that in Mao's China. And then in the 1980s, Beginning in the 1980s, things began to change quite significantly. For the first time in the mid-80s, it became, rather surprisingly, but once again possible to see in China, some acknowledgement that the communists were not the only people who had made a contribution to China's war effort. That the nationalists, for instance, as well as gasped to say it, various foreigners, including Americans and, and Britons even, had had some contribution as well, And in that context, it's important, of course, to understand why the politics had changed. First of all, the very personal duel, you might say, between Mao Zedong and Chiang Kai-shek was over. Mao had died in 76. uh, Chiang Kai-shek just a year before in 1975. Secondly, it became increasingly important for the Chinese communist leadership in Beijing to encourage unification with Taiwan, And they thought, not unreasonably, that being a little bit more nuanced about the nationalist government's record on the mainland, particularly at a time of patriotic sacrifice, might be a useful piece of leverage in terms of reunifying uh, both sides of the strait. Also, of course, the place of Japan had changed in official Chinese minds. Japan was never exactly a close friend of China during the Cold War years, but there were certainly... A lot of trade and economic contacts between the two sides. However, what Beijing really wanted to do was to detach Japan from the Cold War embrace of the United States and gain separate diplomatic recognition from Tokyo. This was finally achieved in 1972 in the penumbra of the Nixon visits, of course, and it meant that now it was no longer necessary to soft-pedal downplay Japanese war atrocities such as the the rape of Nanking when dealing with the the Japanese. Rather timely reminders at appropriate moments of Japanese war crimes in China might be useful when it came to demanding soft loans, uh, industrial development, or a whole variety of other incentives in the present day. And so the scenario changed in terms of the boundaries of what could be talked about in terms of the war years in China, it was finally okay to talk, at least to some extent, about the Kuomintang nationalist contribution and Chiang Kai-shek's government's contribution without being condemned as an imperialist reactionary traitor. Even some quite taboo subjects like Japanese Chinese collaboration with the Japanese in wartime began to get a little bit more space. But one of the most interesting phenomena was not just the reappearance of those sort of subjects in Chinese universities, which people like David Goodman and me spend a lot of, probably too much of our time thinking about, but the entry of this new way of thinking about the war into the popular Chinese culture. And this really took off in a big way in the 1990s and 2000s. So this book is one that I bought in a bookstore in uh, Chengdu, I think, in uh, Sichuan province. And when I picked it up, I thought it was a memoir. In Chinese, it's called One Person's War of Resistance Against Japan. Uh, So I thought maybe it's a wartime memoir. I'd be interested to read it. Actually, it turned out, I think, to be something much, much more interesting than that. Again, those who read Chinese will see it's by a gentleman called Fan Jianchuan. And Fan Jianchuan has become quite famous... In uh, Southwest China, certainly, he is the owner of probably the largest set of private museums anywhere in China. He's an entrepreneur. He's made a lot of money. He made a lot of money. He likes to walk around in a military uniform, to which I'm not entirely sure uh, what his qualifications are, but I'm sure they're I'm sure they're good. Um, and um, he has built, I think, ten private museums. One of them being a museum of the Cultural Revolution, which again is a great rarity in, in China, and one of which is a museum of wartime. But what it concentrates on as you can see, actually, even from this picture, is the nationalist contribution to the war years, not the communist contribution. And that's not surprising, because Sichuan province, where he was based, was also, of course, where Chongqing was then located. I should say then located, because those of you who know Chinese politics will know that in 1996, Chongqing became an autonomous municipality, but geographically, it still sits right in the middle of, of Sichuan province. And he uses this book to basically catalogue his museum exhibits. So they've got things like this steel helmet there. It looks quite Germanic, and that was what a lot of the nationalist officers wore, nationalist troops. Um, ID cards from uh, nurses who worked on the front lines. A whole variety of other things there. And under each of these pictures, a little reflection, subtle, not openly politically dissenting, but getting quite close to it, arguing how, what kind of country China could be to forget this huge great contribution made by Sichuan province and by the nationalist Guomindang armies to defense against Japan. Also appearing at this time was a scenario which, again, for anyone growing up in Britain in the 60s and 70s would have been very familiar. We all, when I was growing up, we all grew up uh, in school with stories, both fact and fictionalised in novels, of evacuees, of children who had been taken away from London or big cities, Liverpool, Bristol, during the Blitz, and farmed out to the countryside where they'd be less likely to to be killed. What's often forgotten is that many people had a similar sort of experience in wartime China, not being shipped out, of course, to the countryside so much as being sent on one of those steamers, many of them run by the Minsheng Company specifically, to take them hundreds of miles up the Yangtze to Chongqing to an unknown fate as a refugee. And this Book called Going to the Interior, meaning the interior of China, Chongqing and areas around, is a set of evacuee memoirs. People now in their 80s and 90s, quite often, doing oral histories, talking about their experience of being snatched up and forced to uh, to move. Uh, at very short notice, to an unknown part of the country to protect themselves from the invaders. These are stories that normally might have been heard 10, 20, 30 years after the experience. But, of course, they were banned for the best part of 40 years because the evacuees had made the decision not to go to the communist-based area at Yen'an, but to the nationalist capital at Chongqing. And after 1949, this meant that their stories were... Um, taboo. Another example of how local identity is being shaped by this new national way of looking at the war is this particular book, which again, if you read the Chinese, is called not the Great War of Resistance of the Chinese people, but the Great War of Resistance of the Sichuan Province people. In other words, it's a piece of local pride and that um, sorry, rather badly reproduced um, picture of an unknown soldier that you can see there, is representing not just any old Chinese soldier, but again, someone specifically from Sichuan province. And this, in particular, has given rise to a huge amount of sort of local pride and interest in rediscovering their own local um, uh, wartime history. During his rise and indeed his period of fall, uh, Bo Xilai, who I'm sure you'll have read in the newspapers, was the party secretary uh, of uh, Chongqing City until he came very badly unstuck last year when his uh, wife was convicted of the the murder of a British businessman and he was indicted on a variety of corruption and other charges. During his time in charge of the city in the late 2000s, early 2010s, um, he spent a great deal of money and time and effort helping to boost Chongqing's own status as a wartime capital, as a means of trying to give the city an extra burnish, an extra polish in terms of its image in China today. And interestingly, that project continues today, even though Bo himself is clearly no longer in a position to do very much about it. One should also notice that one of the biggest and most popular um, projects relating to this uh, in the present day is a project called Water Journey My War which is helmed by one of China's best known TV personalities a man named Cui Yongyuan who basically started through a TV project interviewing, I think, old communist soldiers. And they started to meet old nationalist soldiers, now in their, you know, very ancient, late 80s in many cases, early 90s. I apologize to any nonagenarians in the, uh, the, uh, the audience. Uh, you're not any less valued for your age. But he caught them just in time. And they began to tell him stories that he'd never heard before, um, having been brought up, of course, on the idea that the communists were the only people who did any of the significant fighting against the Japanese. And just in time, in terms of catching their stories, a television series and also a very, very popular internet download um, has surrounded this Wodajangjang project in which ordinary, often very poor and very resentful and neglected former soldiers and their families are finally being reinserted into the narrative. And that's where this, bringing us round as we come towards the end, this is where we started and this is why it's become such a big deal. Because that DVD that I showed you at the beginning of the Chongqing um, uh, anti-Japanese resistance monument alongside the western um, uh, city symbols is part of a much wider wave in popular as well as elite politics, popular culture as well as elite politics and academic writing of reassessment of the war in China itself. And I think that There are probably three things overall that it's worth thinking about in terms of why this is important, other than being a curious um, historical phenomenon of something that was forgotten for a long time and is now coming back only just as the very last survivors of it remain to tell their stories. Number one actually has to do with us in the West rather than in China. I think that our own memories of the wartime period, and I'm using the word memory in the wider sense of social memory, since except for perhaps the, really the older amongst us, none of us are going to have personal memories of that, that period, but the continuing centrality of the war in the culture of so many societies in different sorts of ways, of course. Um, uh, the United States and Germany have very different memories from each other Britain and France have very different memories from each other as the British and the French will no doubt tell you at, uh, at length even in the last um, few months as US troops um, have uh, been, been uh, given, sorry, as Marines sorry have, here in Australia have been moved up to Darwin again. Memories of particular incidents uh, in 1941 42 in which Darwin played a central role have been part of the discussion in the Australian media so every Western society brings its own memories of that global conflict to bear in terms of contemporary significance but just as bringing the soviet story back into the wider understanding of the war helped us to understand the importance of our own western perspective too maybe 20 years ago when those archives opened the insertion of china into that wider story is also an important part of paying honor i think to our own memories and making them more complete But the last two points I'd like to make are about China itself. The first one is about the domestic side of Chinese politics. As you'll know if you follow Chinese politics at all, I would say that um, probably of the many, many problems facing China today, and there are many, the question of the social contract, the question of equality, of fairness, of social welfare... That can overcome the simple growth towards a simple drive towards economic growth, which has brought great riches but also great inequality to China. That's really at the heart of the problem. And remembering the way in which so many of these things were debated in the war years. And as I've suggested, I think the war years specifically play a very central role as they did in Britain, as they did in the US and as they did in various other places in terms of changing the relationship between state and society. So I think we need to see today's developments in China in terms of social welfare, social protest, social contract as part of a much longer scenario that dates from at least the mid-20th century if not before. And the second point is an internationalist point. It's about why China, at a nation-state level, is choosing to promote the memory of this period. And I think for one very important reason, really, is that it's a reminder to the world that there was a time, in the past, but not in the massively distant past, when China was an important, if relatively underplayed and forgotten player, in terms of an alliance against the forces of of fascism, of, uh, uh, of, uh, of reaction, however you want to put it. In other words, that China was an important international actor in a global cooperation and could be once again. Now, I'm not suggesting that this is one crudely maps onto the other, but there's no doubt that anyone who looks at the reason why the United States still has an important role in this region, essentially, it's the very long afterburners of 1945. And I think the afterburners of 1945 for China still have a great deal of resonance, even if they're not as clearly expressed, either in the region or more broadly, as they might have been. For that reason, I will say that I have put some of these ideas together in a book, which will be uh, emerging in just a few weeks' time, in which I try and link together both, I think, the relatively unknown history of China's World War II experience with the reasons that it remains relevant for contemporary politics. But in the last resort, I think I'd close by saying that any conflict, which, as I've said, had perhaps some 40 million deaths, some 100 million refugees, a really life-changing, nation-changing effect on the whole path of Chinese political development, even if it had no relevance for the present day, even if it couldn't help us to understand this region or our wider global politics um, uh, better, it would still repay attention, simply because it is the tale of a nation which in some ways uniquely in the East Asian region did not, despite tremendous provocation, surrender to the technologically superior and ideologically very fierce forces of invasion during that time, but continued, even when their allies doubted them, to resist until the point of final Allied victory. And I think that's something that we could all do well to remember, regardless of our opinions of China in the present day, that China does have an important global role in our understanding of those mid-century wartime years, which remain important to all of our collective memories in the here and now. Thank you all very much.
0: As usual, um, we have a roving mic, and uh, you're very welcome to ask questions. There's some questions over here, please. You might say who you are for the benefit of the uh,
2: podcast, please. Uh, thank you. Um, good evening, Professor uh, Rana. Um, your speech is really good, and also because I'm very interested in this history, this period, not just because me or because my family, my grandpa was in that war. Was a servant soldier, and I know. So that's that history. When my dad told me that history, how you know um, that crisis during Japan gave us the hurt for Chinese people during the Second World War. Um, so my question is that, given the um, the German model for Jewish people during the 1980s, that the Germans recognized massive killing of Jewish people and actually solved, just give back. And also it's hurt so the European crime during the Second World War has been solved in the present days, given the EU is well formed but mm. in China we have a quite peace period in 1980 given that the first generation Japanese politicians recognized their um, you know um, their wrongdoing during the invade of China during the second world War so that's so in the nineties a lot of old Japanese came to China to travel and also to, to, to buy things in China, whatever, to, mm. to show their regrets of the... the their war behaviors mm. in the Second World War. But now, after the 2005, the Japanese political reform where one party become two party competitions, the second generation is now growing up politicians in, in Japan. And their value is totally different, op- is an opposite to China compared to the first generation. So to what extent do you believe? What kind of wisdom between Chinese and Jap- Japanese politicians in solving island issues or whatever, it's normalization of Japanese politicians against the US in the future? So, and what kind of possible um, risk will happen during that period? Thanks very much.
1: Well, um, it's a very interesting point and it's one of the most sensitive questions between the two sides, between China and Japan, about how they can, if they can indeed at all, overcome the history question. I think it is marked by a set of continuing misunderstandings on both sides, and I use the term slightly advisedly. Um, For a start, I think it's fair to say that there are factions within Chinese, uh, sorry, Japanese politics, particularly in some areas of the more conservative side, that are far too careless about understanding Japanese present, uh, sorry, J- Japan's war record, not just in China but in East Asia more generally. That said, I do pay tribute to the fact that in your question you pointed out that there is variation in terms of Japanese attitudes towards China. And I would say, actually, even now, I mean, you talk about different generations of Japanese politicians, but even within each generation, there are different viewpoints. The Japanese left, the progressive left, has always been very important as part of the scenario of exposing Japan's own war crimes. It's worth noting, people often don't remember this, that probably the single most important factor in forcing the massacre in Nanjing into the public's minds, most broadly, was not carried out by, you know, Chinese researchers, but actually was done by Japanese leftist academics and journalists in the early 1970s, Honda Katsushi and others, who traveled back to to China, did interviews, and then published in the Asahi and other places in Japan, too. So, within that context, there's always been a variation of viewpoints not just one single set of scenarios. So that being said, you know, clearly there are people in Japan who clearly continue to try and downplay the uh, extent of Japan's uh, war crimes in, uh, in China. That said, too much of that period is still treated too politically in China. I think one very clear example of this is the Sino-Japanese History Commission, which was put together just a few years ago between top Chinese and top Japanese historians, some really fine uh, historians, very objective and uh, very wide-ranging in terms of their interests, trying to look at the history of Sino japanese relations from the very earliest period up to the war years. Now, although the report was published on the Japanese side despite having a lot of very uncomfortable truths in it. The report actually wasn't eventually published in China at all because it didn't fit with the political needs of the time. So I think the answer has to be that on the one hand it's important that the parts of the public sphere in Japan that don't understand its wartime record need to be further educated on it. China must also understand that there needs to be more open discussion of the history in China to enable both sides to have parity and equality on the, on that front.
3: Mark Skinner, yeah. can I just tease that point out mm. further? Of course. So I guess there's the phrase, isn't it, that never forget the national humiliation, which is a phrase used in Chinese schools and used generally in the, in the world of China, which doesn't just relate to Japan, it relates to a century of humiliation, which starts, with the, which starts I guess, maybe around the, when the British arrive and the opium war. But aren't the Chinese themselves choosing the bits of the national humiliation that are useful to them politically at the moment as arguably an expansionist power, or at least a nation that is (coughs) making a geopolitical play. Hmm. So the Chinese themselves have the ability to perhaps wind up and wind down these things the way that the Vietnamese do, so the the Vietnamese Hmm. can wind up and wind down their historic disputes with the Chinese. How do you deal with that? I mean, if you let the cat out of the bag and you create a whole idea of national humiliation, it's very difficult to politically deal with that. So I wonder if you... How does that fit into the way you think about the Chinese war? Because it seems to me there's arguably a choice about this. I'm not saying that any of these things were terrible. We know that the effect upon the Chinese was disastrous but also in 2013, there are choices about the way you deal with these things. Mm-hmm.
1: That's a very, very well put uh, point. I mean, I think it is true, it's unarguable, that there is a very strong sense at the you know, top and elite levels that history should be used to try and shape contemporary politics. I would point out that there's not the only place in the world where this happens. I mean, again, the example that comes to mind from perhaps 15, 17 years ago was there was a huge controversy in Washington DC about the display of the Enola Gay, the uh, B-29, which dropped the first atomic bomb on Hiroshima, uh, which ended up you know, essentially with the exhibition almost being canceled because uh, a combination of different interest groups were unable to agree what was the correct narrative behind that particular uh, event. But that said, I think it makes a difference in a society like the US or Australia or indeed Japan, where you have a clearly delineated public sphere that's separate from the government, as opposed to China, where these things are much more murky and connected uh, uh, connected uh, together. I think the national humiliation narrative, which, as you say, is a very long-standing one, emerges in some forms in the late 19th um, century. Um, Probably has the greatest difficulty with it in a sense is that it's actually not a very productive narrative. Most societies and most countries, and certainly China at its greatest, which it has been many times over the last few millennia, did not thrive most when it was feeling sorry for itself. It's necessary to understand the importance of the very difficult and disastrous period of history in the late 19th and early 20th century, um, when China was genuinely being you know, battered by, as they put it, imperialism from outside and warlordism from uh, from within. But it does t- tend to create a sort of defensive Narrative. One of the biggest problems that China has today is to try and deal with actually what is yet another piece of the unfinished business of post 1945, which is to find a new consensual role for itself in the East Asia region. And I think what it's trying to find at the moment, but has not yet succeeded is something that sits in between the sort of two contrasting halves, almost the yin and yang, of um, that scenario at the moment. One is a a narrative of victimhood, and one is a narrative of sort of entitlement to um, a more important role in uh, in the region. Partly this reflects different interest groups again within China's own society. It's not as if there is one Chinese voice that has one view on any of these uh, of these questions. But I think probably greater acknowledgement and understanding by the outside world of the very difficult parts of China's history, including the part I've been talking about here, has to go hand in hand with understanding and enabling China to take a more kind of positive and cooperative role in contemporary society. I think it is sometimes, uh, what would you call it, sort of annoying perhaps to be told when you're you know, a, a politician or a business executive or whatever it may be in the year 2013 that you mustn't forget about the Opium Wars or you mustn't forget about the Civil War or about World War II. But I would feel more sympathetic to the complaints if I really felt that those of us in the West actually did understand these events in the way that we perhaps understand our own history, uh, history better. So I think that level of concession of trying genuinely to understand the importance of that history at the same time as coming up with a more cooperative scenario need to go hand-in-hand hand with, uh, with each other. And that may rub away some of the, the national humiliation rhetoric eventually.
2: You referred earlier to, <coughs> excuse me, uh, to the effect of the bombing on industry in uh, in the nationalist area uh, that contributed to the economic ruin of the nationalist government. Uh, if I followed you correctly, uh, yeah. To what extent would you attribute the collapse of the nationalist government uh, by? what my reading is said that the soviets came into manchuria and stripped all industry out of there in that brief period that have conflict between russia and japan do you think that that was a, had more or less weight in the uh, demise of that government
1: at some um, a very good and interesting point about whether or not the, the stripping of industrial plant in uh, what had been manchukuo the client state set up by the japanese in northeast china had a significant effect on failing to let the nationalists um, uh, re-industrialise at the end of the war. I think it has an importance, but to be absolutely honest, I don't think it's central for the following reason. By 1945, China was just broken apart. The thing that had made the country work as well as it did, when it did work well, was that over the centuries, let alone the decades, it had developed a very, very sophisticated transport infrastructure, marketing system, communication system, internal customs and uh, taxation system. Some of these had, you know, gone, uh, you know, rather downhill by the late 19th century, but they still existed as a sort of network that connected parts of China the war essentially broke apart large parts of those uh, of those connections. So for instance, one of the reasons for the, the massive famine in Henan province in 1942 was not lack of food as such, but the inability to find structures to get the food to where it was needed, where people were, were starving. And in that sense... in The the, the China that actually existed, you know, it was on its knees pretty much in 1945, even if there had been more industrial production in Manchuria at that time, I think it would have been very hard to either find a proper market for the produced goods or literally to transport them uh, around uh, in China at that time. It was very clear that the industrial base and infrastructure railways and so forth had been so badly damaged that only... A huge external loan, along with a real instant clear up of the government, neither of which were very likely to or to happen at that stage, could have really fundamentally turned things around. In a sense, that was the tragedy of the war years. The nationalists won in the technical sense, but they actually signed their own death warrant by all the things they had to do to to make it to the to the end of the war.
2: Thanks, Ron. Uh, Jamie Riley. Okay. But, Um, I wanted to ask you to speak a little bit about some of the implications for China relations between the mainland and Taiwan. Mm. Uh, I know that uh, on the PRC side, part of this sort of re-remembering of of the role of the KMT was in the context of reaching out to the KMT on Taiwan, that the, the the PRC government wanted to improve relations and so saw praising some of the KMT roles as useful in that regard. But I know a lot less about the Taiwan side of the politics. I wonder if you could speak a little bit about how the KMTs responded to, to this approach.
1: Jamie? thank you for that, uh, uh, that very um, important question, because, of course, the idea that by being uh, more welcoming in terms of the, the narratives about the war that they were willing to tolerate might help reunification with Taiwan turned out to be entirely misjudged. The... A rise in shares, you might say, in Chiang Kai-shek in the 1990s in China coincided with his shares in Taiwan going down very strongly and big time. He, of course, had died in 1975, and in the decade or so after that, his son, Zhang Jingo, in particular, had been instrumental in democratizing Taiwan. And part of the emergence of a two-party system in Taiwan was the emergence of a much more indigenous Taiwan native-driven politics that regarded the nationalists as having been invaders as brutal occupiers who had committed atrocities of their own, including a massive uh, killing of the island's indigenous elites in 1947, very early on in their um, uh, occupation of the island before they had even fled the the mainland. And for that reason, the fact that the mainland was being more uh, uh, accommodating about Chiang Kai-shek was not actually a message that they wished to hear. Since then, things have gone back and forth. In terms of the history, what has emerged, which I think is actually much more productive and interesting in some ways, is that both historians in Taiwan and um, in the mainland are now very much on the same research agenda. Uh, Professor Goodman is, uh, um, also has a, uh, an, uh, uh, a nominated position at Nanjing University in China. I think he will attest that their history department has very extensive and uh, friendly contacts with their equivalents in Taiwan institutions, with the two of them regularly meeting for conferences, discussions over archival documents, scenarios, and, and so forth. But I would say that broadly speaking the thing politically outside the academy that has brought Taiwan and China closer together, and that definitely has been the case in the last few years, is the emergence of greater trade links, the fact that there's so much Taiwanese FDI foreign, if it is foreign, you know, at least direct investment into the mainland, the setting up of direct airline routes. I mean, someone who started working on Chinese studies more than 20 years ago I didn't imagine, you know, in the early 1990s that there would now be direct airline flights between Shanghai and Taipei, but now it's quite mainstream. These things have not really taken place as part of the historical realignment. They've been more part of the kind of trade-driven end of things. But I think the fact that the historians are coming together doesn't hurt in this uh, scenario. Maybe one of the things that leads eventually to this rather sort of soft reunification between Taiwan and China that seems to be continuing and and, and underway.
2: Uh, Professor, I was just going to ask a question relating to, you mentioned the internationalisation of the Gomindang's resistance to the Japanese. Uh, I was wondering how did the Goming Dang make use of the growing anti-colonial rhetoric that was coming out of, say, the Atlantic Charter in order to change uh, China's relationship with, say, uh, Western powers in terms of the treaty ports and the unequal treaty arrangements?
1: I think this is one of the most interesting and, again, under-examined aspects of the significance of China's role in World War II. And there's about twenty pages on it in the book, so you can always look that uh, that up. I'm about to say, and that's the bit where I what, what I think of as when Chang met Gandhi. Um, again, some of you may know this, but it's worth noting that one of the very first things that happened after the fully allied war effort, or not fully because no Soviet Union, but after the British Empire, the United States, and China were officially constituted as, as allies after after World War, sorry, after Pearl Harbor, was that Chiang Kai-shek um, offered, indeed insisted on flying to India in February 1942, to meet Nehru and Gandhi, the two leaders of the Indian independence movement. The scenario he put forward was that he, as the only non-white, non-European, anti-imperialist figure at the top of the Allied table, diplomatic table, could talk to Nehru and, Chang, uh, sorry, Nehru and Gandhi in a way that you know, Winston Churchill neither could nor would would have thought of ever doing, or even President Roosevelt, who was more anti-imperialist in his sympathies, but clearly was not in the, in the same sort of, uh, of league as Chiang in terms of credibility. Churchill thought this was a very, very bad idea and tried to prevent it uh, at, uh, at some length. But in fact, it would have been a powerful and important element if Chiang had succeeded. What he wanted was to get a formal endorsement from Nehru and Gandhi for full Indian participation in the war effort, that the Indian independence movement would put its credibility behind the war effort, because if that happened then essentially you know, Indian independence activists would be encouraged to join up and India's immense manpower would be brought to bear in the war, meaning that things like the recapture of Burma might be made uh, easier. In fact, Nehru was pretty friendly with Chiang, Gandhi and, Nehru, uh, sorry, Gandhi and Chiang didn't get on so well and In the end, neither independence leader was willing fully to endorse Chang's scenario. And again, it's one of those sort of slightly lost opportunities that for that reason has not been fully examined. But I think its significance lies in something much greater, which is exactly what you're talking about. For Chang, as for Mao and for other leaders, the war was not... As it was for Churchill about the restoration of the British Empire. It was not as it was for Roosevelt about trying to restore the open door in, in, in East Asia. It was about anti imperialism. It was about the achievement of sovereignty and nationhood and all of the things that anti imperialist activists in Asia and elsewhere had been fighting for for many decades but through another means. On the one hand, clearly the most immediate danger was Japanese imperialism, which had invaded and threatened to destroy the Chinese state. On the other hand, this didn't mean that Chiang didn't recognize that the British in particular, but certainly the Americans as well, were also imperialists of another variety, and that while for a temporary basis it was okay to use them as allies, On a wider scale, it was important to push for the kind of things that you were talking about, such as the ending of extraterritorial Western rights on Chinese soil, which was achieved in uh, in 1943, um, and for, as he hoped, for instance, the return of Hong Kong. It is never, ever remarked, as far as I know, by the um, People's Republic of China government, maybe it ought to be, The reason that China today has its permanent five seat in the Security Council is nothing to do with Mao Zedong, it's to do with the fact that Chiang Kai-shek was given the Chinese seat, the only non-white, non-European seat in the permanent five at the UN Security Council as a result of China's contribution to the war effort in 1945.
2: Good evening, Professor. My name is Cathy Chang. I have a question about China's role in the UN. Do you you foresee any significant change in China's contribution to UN peacekeeping efforts in the next decade?
1: Um, China's peacekeeping efforts in the UN in the next decade. The answer to your question, very briefly, is yes. I think there is likely to be more Chinese contribution to UN peacekeeping operations, as you'll know, and as people here may well know. There's actually been quite a significant, although um, um, low-key, Chinese uh, peacekeeping effort for some decades. And indeed, uh, Dr. Jamie Riley, who's at the front here, has uh, been a colleague on a project I've worked on, too, in which one of our other postdoctoral colleagues is a former Chinese People's Liberation Army officer who actually served in peacekeeping operations in Western Sahara amongst um, other uh, places which is one of the things that gave him a uh, taste for the uh, the bigger wider world and he uh, moved on to uh, studying history and uh, moved to Canada eventually so it can put ideas in people's heads more broadly speaking China is clearly still seeking I would almost say struggling to try and define its role in international society today the lack I think of real Kind of Chinese solutions to the North Korea problem shows how far it still has to go in terms of defining that role, but I think that it seems clear to, well, it seems clear to me that Beijing sees further participation in peacekeeping operations as a relatively low cost, low impact um, and relatively non controversial way to try and increase Beijing's role in terms of, uh, of global society. And more presence in that sense may be useful as a way of counterbalancing some of the aspects of Chinese international policy that are seen by at least some actors as being more assertive. So in a sense, because it helps to bolster China's own sense of itself, I think it is likely that there will be more involvement in those sorts of UN operations in in future years.
0: Um,
2: thanks for the presentation. Uh, if history shapes the present, um, to what extent do you think the Chinese Communist Party is using this history, the wartime history, to promote nationalism and uh, to divert some attention from you know, uh, inequality that is present in the Chinese society to the focus on Japanese imperialism and the US uh, imperialism?
1: Um, I think there is an extent to which um, the Chinese official discourse uses aspects of history to try and distract from contemporary social problems. I would say again, as I said to an earlier question, I don't think the Chinese government is the only government in the world that looks at certain more abstract issues, whether they might be you know, immigration or you know, defense policy or whatever else it might be, to try and avoid attention on social, uh, social realities. And it's certainly the case that certain types of nationalism, often quite assertive nationalism, have proved quite powerful in the public sphere. Anyone who looks at Chinese social media when it comes to questions of dealing with Japan and dealing with... Um, Aspects of China's uh, territorial claims will know that there is a very significant public sphere that demands stronger not weaker action from the Chinese government so sometimes those who wish for a, 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 as Jamie Riley has written a very very good book about this which I recommend you all to read called uh, "Smart so- so it's, uh, Strong State, Smart Society? No Smart State, Strong Society. Um, sometimes you want to be careful of what you wish for because the public sphere having more of a role in Chinese foreign policy making may push it more in the direction of active nationalism rather than calming it, uh, calming it down. But I think I think, you know, we need to differentiate different sorts of things. After a very long period, including the period I've been talking about, when it's clear that China has genuinely been given a pretty rotten deal in world historical terms, it is not unnatural that at a time of relative prosperity, relative uh, peace, and relative, relative stability, that the Chinese government and the Chinese people should think in a more active way about their role in the world. And having a strong sense of national pride in that sense, any more than any other country, is not an unreasonable or unworthy thing. It's a question of how it gets used in terms of engagement with the outside world. And I think the danger point comes when it spills over into confrontation, into zero-sum politics. There is no inevitable need for it to take that direction um, at the moment. And I think part of the way in which that could be prevented lies on our side as well as on China's side. So I think while we should spend time definitely thinking about what we should be advising China to do, we should also spend time thinking about what we can do as well.
0: Um, I'll ask a more historical question.
1: Did this gentleman get a question already? Or, um, uh, you haven't had a question already.
0: Okay. Okay. Uh, my question is a bit uh, more historical, okay. um, because from what I read of your lecture, uh, thank you for this enlightening lecture. Um, from, from what I understand of lecture, you seem to imply the inevitability, inevitability of the KMT's downfall in 1945. So my question is, is there anything that that Chiang Kai-shek and KMT could have done between 1945 to 49 to prevent them from have uh, from prevent this inevitable
1: uh, from what happened in Uh Yes, uh, but it's taken me about 500 pages to explain the answer to that, so you may need to read them. But very briefly, very few things are inevitable. But what I think it's fair to say is that by the end of the war against Japan, by the end of 1945. China's political, economic, and social situation was, you know, an absolutely dire state. The answer to your question is, I think, that what China really needed, and the only way it could have happened, was a massive Marshall Plan. In other words, a huge American loan. I think that was extremely unlikely, A, because America was already paying for most of Europe and large parts of other parts of East Asia, and also because, in something I didn't really touch on here because of time, but it's quite a large part of the, 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 the book, relations between the United States and nationalist China become pretty toxic, Um, not least because of disagreements between Chang's chief of staff, an American named General Joe Stilwell, and the Nationalist High Command. And until recently, the story has generally been told in terms of Stilwell was an honest American who, uh, you know, was undone by Chinese corruption, whereas nowadays I think people look at it in a slightly more nuanced way. I think also the the endogenous problems that came with the war that helped create corruption, inflation, and all these problems were pretty hard to counter because they had sort of eaten into the body of the party and the state that was sort of propping propping the country country up. There should have been, you know, a full and proper anti-corruption movement. Whether something like that could actually have happened in the China at that time I do wonder, and I think it's yet another reason why eventually the complete overturning society, particularly in the rural areas that came with the communist revolution, ultimately turned out to be successful. But nothing is inevitable. And I think certainly, possibly accepting some kind of compromise agreement that would have um, created a smaller communist part of China and a kind of wider nationalist part of China, like Germany, might have been a scenario, but you're then into the realms of sort of virtual history where you have to think of a whole bunch of, uh, of counterfactuals, and we know that that's not the way that things turned out. Okay.
0: Well, um, before uh, you join me in thanking uh, Rana, one thing is inevitable, and that is the success of his new book. So, <laughs> Particularly if you all go out and buy Thank you.
1: Thank you all for coming today. It's been a great pleasure to have your company, and I appreciate your coming. Thank you.